This is Erica Fries here from <laughs> Death Radio. Endlich! Wir reden über den Tod. Hallo, liebe Sterbliche! Hier ist der Endlich! Podcast Nummer 14! Das ist, unsere neue, ähm, das ist unsere neue Begrüßung, haben wir uns überlegt. So wie die alten Griechen das gemacht haben. Ja, oder wir wissen es irgendwie immer noch nicht genau. Ich habe es mit meiner Freundin, die Lateinlehrerin ist, diskutiert. Und mhm. die meinte also, von den Römern käme es nicht. Da würde nur zu den Gladiatoren liebe Todgeweihte gesagt. Von jemandem, der da eine Rede hält zu denen. Ja, das sind nämlich Morituri Thesalutant. Ganz genau. Das ist das, was ich beim letzten Mal rausgeschnitten hat. Deswegen hat keiner eine Ahnung, worum, worüber du gerade gesprochen hast. Und das mit den Sterblichen habe ich dann mit jemand anderem diskutiert. Könnte tatsächlich nur von den Griechen kommen, weil da gab es ja die Götter, die ja die Unsterblichen sind mhm. und äh, die Sterblichen. Naja. Und jetzt erstmal müssen wir sagen, ich bin Caro und neben mir sitzt auf der Endlich-Couch. Susanne, hallo. Ja, wir haben heute mal wieder ein, eine Tod- und Popkultur-Folge. Yes. Ähm, jetzt schon die zweite. Die erste hatten wir ja mit George Cameron. Und heute haben wir Erika Fries zu Gast und ich bin Fangirl. Du musst mal kurz sagen, wer Erika Fries ist für die Leute, die sie nicht kennen. Genau. Wie, wie mich zum Beispiel. Erika ist eine äh, Musikerin und man kennt die in erster Linie von ihrer Band, die sie, glaube ich, seit zehn Jahren hat, äh, Reviver. Das ist eine Hardcore-Band, die auch so in queeren Kreisen sehr beliebt ist. Und äh, die kommen aus Olympia, Washington. Und hm. sie macht aber auch ganz wunderschöne Musik seit ein paar Jahren. Nur sie, also sie singt und spielt Gitarre und spielt auch ein bisschen Cello. So Singer-Songwriter-mäßig. Und ich habe immer gedacht, Mann, als ich äh, ihre Lieder gehört habe, wir müssten die eigentlich mal einladen, weil es da echt oft um den Tod geht. In den Liedern. In den Liedern. Und äh, jetzt ist sie tatsächlich in Berlin und hat Ja gesagt. Yes! <lacht> toll, toll. Super. Genau, und wir werden sie natürlich auch so ein bisschen dazu befragen, wie wird eigentlich mit dem Tod in Amerika, also in US-Amerika, wie sagt man das? In so? USA. In USA. <lacht> wie wird in USA so mit dem Tod umgegangen? Ah, das, ja. Und natürlich auch so der Umgang mit dem Tod in der Punk- und Hardcore-Szene. Das, das interessiert mich alles. Das interessiert mich auch sehr. Und das Verrückte ist, das wird auf Englisch stattfinden. Ja, das ist unser erster englischsprachiger Gast. Und da müsst ihr jetzt durch. Ja, und wir auch. Wir müssen uns auch so ein bisschen einen abkorksen. Aber da, das werden wir alle aushalten. Das wird kein Problem. Ich bin ehrlich gesagt auch ein bisschen aufgeregt, dass wir Englisch sprechen müssen. Mal gucken, wie das funktioniert. Ich wollte aber noch mal so ein paar Sachen shoutouten. Vielleicht sollten wir eine neue Kolumne dafür einführen, für so, so mit so einem Jingle, so News. Neuigkeiten. Mhm. Na, kannst du vielleicht ein bisschen so ein, so ein kleines bisschen poppiger machen, weil es ja eine Popkulturfolge. Das klang jetzt wie 70er Jahre heute. Neuigkeiten. Mhm. Nee. Ja. <lacht> genau, die Neuigkeiten sind nämlich, wir sind ganz stolz, weil wir gerade von Zeit Online hier Top of the Pots gewählt wurden. Neben Ira Glass und Jonathan Van Ness. Und ich finde, das ist ein sehr angemessenes Umfeld ja, für uns. Frau Bauerfeind war auch noch dabei, glaube ich. Ja. Darüber haben wir uns sehr gefreut. Und es gibt weitere gute Nachrichten. Wir sind nämlich für den Podcastpreis 2019 nominiert worden. Mhm. Und jetzt müsst ihr nämlich voten. Also da werden Hörerstimmen entgegengenommen. Und wir sind in der Kategorie Bildung nominiert. Wie findest du das eigentlich, Caro, dass wir in der Kategorie Bildung Ich sind? finde das sehr angemessen. Wirklich? Ich hätte uns eher in die Kategorie Unterhaltung gebracht. Aber da hätten wir so harte Konkurrenz gehabt, mit so Leuten, die so millionenfache Sachen haben. Da sind auch echt ein paar interessante andere Sachen dabei. Hast du das mal angeschaut? Ja, der Rise and Shine ist da, glaube ich, das auch Das ist auch dabei. cool, ja. Aber es gibt auch so ein, die agile Schule zum Beispiel. <lacht> fand ich sehr interessant. So ein Podcast darüber, wie man so agile Strukturen in, in den Schulalltag integrieren kann. Nee, also sowas ist da auch dabei. Sehr hands Und man on. kann für drei Leute stimmen, für drei verschiedene Podcasts. Genau, ihr könnt drei Podcasts in einer Kategorie wählen. Ähm, aber macht das, das wäre total super. Weitere Neuigkeiten. Wir haben eine weitere Understanding-Mitgliedschaft bei Steady. Ihr könnt auf unserer Webseite endlich CC so Pakete äh, euch aussuchen, wo ihr uns monatlich unterstützt. Das fängt bei einem 
7 Euro an, weil wir ja mit dem Podcast kein Geld verdienen, aber durchaus einige laufende Kosten haben. Und da hat Astrid Deutsch die Understanding-Mitgliedschaft abgeschlossen und wir sagen tausend Dank, Astrid. Danke, Astrid. Das mhm. ist super. Ich habe übrigens überlegt zu sein, wir könnten mal so kleine Haikus für unsere Understanding-UnterstützerInnen machen demnächst. Dichten. Mhm. Du möchtest, dass wir Haikus für... <lacht> Das möchtest du. Ich finde das. Vielleicht toll. sollten wir solche Sachen vor der Aufnahme besprechen, damit wir so. Okay. Ja. Okay, also okay, vielleicht. Vielleicht. Ihr könnt ja uns schreiben, ob ihr das gut findet, wenn wir so kleine Haikus für euch schreiben würden. Okay. Nächstes Thema. Ach, genau. Nee, ich wollte noch sagen: ein weiteres Dankeschön, wenn ihr uns bei Steady unterstützt, ist eine CD mit unserer ultimativen Endlich-Beerdigungs-Playlist. Und ich muss sagen, wir haben die jetzt gerade, wir sind in die CD-Produktion gegangen. <lacht> die sind alle handgemacht mit sehr viel Liebe von uns. Und ich habe echt ein bisschen geweint, als ich mir die Playlist äh, angehört habe. Okay, also das ist was für Leute mit PMS oder die ein bisschen traurig sein wollen gerade. Oder vielleicht auch Leute, die gute Musik für eine Beerdigung brauchen. Ja, mhm. also es ist, da sind wirklich echt schöne Songs drauf. Könnt ihr euch ja auch mal angucken. Ja. Hast du denn irgendwelche Sachen, die dich gerade so beschäftigen im Zusammenhang mit Todkarung? Ja, also ich habe sowas gehabt, was mich aus unserem letzten Podcast so ein bisschen beschäftigt hat. Aha. Weil war's? da war ja Roland Schulz zu Gast. Und der hat ja was gesagt, was mir echt so ein bisschen zu denken gegeben hat. Der sagte so, dass die Beschäftigung mit dem Tod das Leben ja so intensiv leuchten lässt. Das, oder dass er das Gefühl hatte, dass das sozusagen dieser Effekt ist. Und dass er aber auch glaubt, dass man das nicht dauerhaft herstellen kann. Und das fand ich ganz interessant, weil das meinem Gefühl widerspricht. Ich habe das so verstanden, dass das ja sozusagen so eine Art künstliches Leuchten ist. Ne? Also sozusagen, dass man das hm. in, dem, in dem Kontrast dazu kriegt es dann so eine Art künstliche Intensität. Oder zumindest habe ich das so verstanden und dass es auch gar nicht wünschenswert ist, dass es diese Intensität die ganze Zeit hat. Und meine Erfahrung ist wirklich ein bisschen eine andere, weil ich habe ja im Moment ganz extrem das Gefühl, dass so die Beschäftigung mit dem Tod ganz viele Auswirkungen auf mein Leben hat. Und ich habe aber das Gefühl, dass das auf so eine ganz ähm, sanfte, organische und ja eben auch bei so ganz kleinen Dingen, also dass das gar nichts so krasses, das wird jetzt angeleuchtet ist, mhm. sondern dass das so ganz viele kleine Dinge sind, die man erstmal vielleicht auch gar nicht merkt und dann plötzlich hat sich aber irgendwie was verändert und es hat aber was ganz ja organisches, natürliches irgendwie. Ich habe dazu eine Theorie. Bitte. Ich glaube, dass dass ihr zwei unterschiedliche Sachen meint, Roland und du. Aha. Ich glaube, dass Roland ich meine, er hat ja auch in unserem Podcast gesagt, dass er sich nicht damit befasst hat, mit dem Sterben und dem Tod, weil er selbst betroffen ist, sondern mhm. aus so einem journalistischen Interesse heraus. Ja. Dass er einfach wissen wollte, genau wie er bei der Geburt seiner Kinder wissen wollte, wie das alles funktioniert, wollte er genauso wissen, also so ein Erkenntnisinteresse, wie funktioniert das? Das ist dieses reine intellektuelle Interesse am Tod, was ich auch faszinierend finde. Aber ich glaube, was es halt so organisch und so natürlich macht, ist, dass man dass sich das nicht aussuchen kann, ob man sich damit beschäftigt oder nicht. Und wenn man eben da so reingeschmissen wird, indem man Leute verliert, die man liebt, die einfach sterben und man in dieser Situation drin hängt, ob man jetzt will oder nicht und eben die Kontrolle ein Stück weit abgeben muss. Hm. Weil er hat sie ja nicht abgegeben. Er hat es, er hat es <lacht> sich dafür entschieden, das zu machen. Hm. Und das ist auch so ein sehr rationaler Vorgang. Und dann, wenn man dann irgendwas erkennt durch Recherche oder Interviews und so, Klar leuchtet das dann. Also natürlich, so Erkenntnis leuchtet immer, finde ich. Mm. Und das kann ich halten, weil irgendwann ist Erkenntnis, das ist halt auch so zeitlich begrenzt. Irgendwann mm. ist die Erkenntnis vorbei und dann hört es auf. Aber wenn du da reingeschmissen bist und dich damit auseinandersetzt, bewusst und das äh, über einen längeren Zeitraum auch machst, so wie wir das machen, dass es dann einfach so reinsickert. Ja, vielleicht genau. Eher in das dein sickert Leben. rein. Ja. Das ist ein total guter Ausdruck dafür. Hm. Ja, und dass es auch auf so einer tiefen Ebene wirkt. Das genau. finde ich total toll. Es sickert so ins untere Hautgewebe. <lacht> oh, du bist so poetisch, Susanne. Ich frage mich, woher das kommt. Es <lacht> muss auch der Tod sein. Mhm. Ja. ja, aber das finde ich eine ne einleuchtende Theorie mhm. tatsächlich. Ja, damit habe ich mich aber auch auseinandergesetzt. Da habe ich auch drüber nachgedacht, warum er das gesagt hat und, und wie er das so wie er das so empfunden hat auch. 
Und dass er ja auch oft gemeint hat, dass er es gar nicht so gut findet, wenn man, oder das andere, also er hat nie gesagt, dass er das nicht gut findet, aber er hat gesagt, dass Leute ihm berichtet hätten, die da arbeiten, dass sie das nicht so gut finden, wenn Leute selbst betroffen sind yeah. und sich dann äh, irgendwie als Bestatter oder weiß ich nicht was verdingen. Mm. Und das hat mich auch, da habe ich ein bisschen drüber gegrübelt und dachte, woher, warum? Warum? Das ist total interessant. Das sind genau die Dinge, die mich auch beschäftigt haben, weil ich ja eben auch genau den umgekehrten Fall oft kenne, ne? dass es eben Leute sind, die quer einsteigen über eine persönliche Beschäftigung oder über ein persönliches Erlebnis, was sie damit hatten. Mhm. Und dass ich ja immer das Gefühl hatte, dass es, dass sie gerade deswegen ihren Job besonders gut machen. Ja, genau. Naja, und auch, das habe ich in meiner Sterbebegleiterausbildung gelernt, dieses, ähm, also sozusagen, Holands Theorie war ja, man hängt dann da einfach emotional so sehr drin und ist auch so persönlich betroffen. Das kann man dann nur eine gewisse Zeit lang so machen und dann ist man so erschöpft, dass man es das nicht mehr machen kann. Mhm. Und ähm, in meiner Ausbildung zur Sterbebegleitung wurde versucht, uns das zu vermitteln, dass man zwar Dinge an sich ranlassen kann und sollte und dass es aber trotzdem einen Unterschied gibt sozusagen zwischen eben Mitleid und Mitgefühl, also ja. dass man eben ja. dieses Mitleiden und tatsächlich äh, mit drinstecken, dass das nochmal was anderes ist als Mitgefühl haben und eben was an sich ranzulassen, aber es eben nicht so weit kommen zu lassen, dass es dich so angeht, dass du es mit nach Hause nimmst und dass es dich halt dann nach zehn Jahren dazu bringt, dass du nicht mehr Bestatter sein kannst mhm. oder Sterbebegleiter oder was auch immer. Fand ich ganz, ganz interessant. Mhm. Ja. Hast du noch was anderes mitgenommen? Ja, also ich hatte vor kurzem wieder mal so ein Erlebnis, wo ich echt dachte, Mann, wie intensiv einen diese Dinge doch auch weiterhin begleiten. Und zwar war das auf der Premiere von dem aktuellen Sarggeschichten-Film. Mhm. Mhm. Darin geht es eben um begleitete Kremation, also wie man eben auch mit ins Krematorium gehen kann mhm. und da sozusagen wirklich dabei sein kann, wenn der Sarg in den Ofen fährt und verbrannt wird und was man demjenigen noch alles mitgeben kann und so weiter und so fort. Und das war total interessant, weil ich meine, ich war ja nun selbst schon bei meinem Bestatterpraktikum bei Kremationen dabei, bei begleiteten Kremationen und habe das alles äh, mir vor Ort angeguckt. Und da gab es aber trotzdem wieder so einen Moment, als wir diesen Film angeguckt haben, wo ich so, wo mich das so angegangen ist, dass ich das bei Stefan nicht hatte. Und dass wir eben, als Stefan, mein Ex-Freund, gestorben ist, so einen Anruf bekommen haben, am Tag, nachdem er kremiert worden ist, ja, übrigens, der Leichnam ist gestern auch kremiert worden. Und mich hat das ja so schockiert, dass ich wirklich das Gefühl hatte, okay, der ist jetzt gerade nochmal gestorben. Mhm. Und das ist mir bei dieser Sarggeschichtenpremiere nochmal so krass hochgekommen, dass ich so wirklich nochmal dran denken musste, wie das dann passiert ist, dass er eben, dass er alleine war, dass niemand wusste, was er eigentlich anhatte. Niemand hat dem irgendwelche Kleider gebracht die er anziehen sollte. Und ich finde das so schlimm. Das ist was, was ich wirklich, obwohl ich mich so viel damit beschäftige und mich so viel damit auseinandergesetzt habe, was ich so mit mir rumtrage immer noch. Und da ist mir einfach mal wieder klar geworden, wie wichtig das ist, eben was die Sarggeschichten machen oder was Bestatterinnen und Bestatter machen, dass ähm, die einfach informieren und dass man weiß, was möglich ist. Ja. Und dass die Leute informierte Entscheidungen treffen können. Und dass man eben dem dem Bestatter sagen kann, ich möchte wissen, wann der Mensch verbrannt wird. Oder ich möchte sogar dabei sein, wenn er verbrannt wird. Und da eben nicht so völlig unwissend ähm, in so eine Situation geworfen werden, die man dann einfach nicht mehr rückgängig machen kann. Ja, das stimmt. Und das ist so scheiße. Das ist so, wie es, das passiert genau so, wie es passiert. Und dann kannst du das nicht mehr zurückholen. Ja. Und das ist ein Kack. Ja. Ja. Dann kannst du es nur noch vergessen, entweder. Ja, oder halt so Stück für Stück irgendwie damit umgehen, ne? mhm. so lernen. Aber es, es ist eine krasse Last, die man, die man da mit sich rumträgt. Und hat echt weitreichende Auswirkungen. Und deswegen, also, genau, deswegen glaube ich, das drüber sprechen und das informieren und gute Berater haben, ist echt wichtig. Also tragt das in die Welt hinaus, ihr Sterblichen. Ich finde das immer so krass, wenn du solche Sachen sagst, weil ich da, ich habe da irgendwie, ich habe das gar nicht so. Das ist komisch. 
Was meinst du? Was naja, ich meine, das ist ja, du weißt ja, ich habe noch nie jemanden gesehen, der tot ist, mhm. dabei ist irgendwie von meiner Familie noch eine einzige Person übrig. Ja. Also das ist eigentlich auch ein totales Unding. Aber ich habe da auch, ich, ich weiß nicht, wenn ich daran denke, dass ich da dabei, also ich hätte mich vielleicht auch ein bisschen überfordert gefühlt, mhm. glaube ich. Also in, mir hat natürlich keiner irgendwas gesagt und der Bestatter war so maximal abwehrend allem gegenüber und hat halt äh, uns einfach nur eine Rechnung gegeben, die wir uns anschauen durften, um, um dann zu sagen, aber warum ist das der, der teure Sarg oder sowas. Und ich glaube, ich habe sogar gefragt, ob wir ihn nochmal anschauen dürfen, meinen Bruder. Mhm. Und dann hat er halt so vehement gesagt, nein. Und auch so dieser Kriminalbeamte halt vorher schon. Ja. Und meine Mutter saß da und hat die ganze Zeit geweint und ich habe die ganze Zeit geweint und wir waren einfach so völlig fertig, dass keiner von uns auch nur annähernd in der Lage gewesen wäre zu sagen, doch, wir wollen es aber. Ja, ja, aber genau das ist ja der Punkt. Ich glaube, es geht ja wirklich gar nicht darum, dass man das machen muss oder dass man das machen soll, wenn man das Gefühl hat, dass es nicht gut für einen ja, ist. Ne? Ja, stimmt schon. Aber dass eben in dem Moment du eine informierte Entscheidung treffen kannst. so mhm. Und das halt in dem Moment, und deswegen sage ich ja immer dieses, wie wichtig gute Berater sind, wenn da eben jemand sitzt, der dir erklärt, warum bestimmte Dinge wichtig sind und der, der dir erklärt, was du zu erwarten hast und was du nicht zu erwarten hast und der im Zweifelsfall sich den Toten eben vorher anguckt mhm. und dir genau erklärt, wie der aussieht, ähm, ja, was du zu erwarten hast, wenn du da reingehst und dich von dem verabschiedest. Und wenn du dann entscheiden kannst, willst du das machen oder willst du das nicht machen, dann ist das, glaube ich, einfach eine komplett andere Situation. Ja, das und das hätte ich mir halt einfach sehr gewünscht, weil ich habe ja nun heute eine sehr große Offenheit diesen Dingen mhm. gegenüber. Und damals, als Stefan gestorben ist, hätte ich das von mir aus aber auch niemals gemacht. Ja. Aber wenn sich jemand mit mir hingesetzt hätte und gesagt hätte, pass mal auf, meine Erfahrung mit Leuten, die schon, die das gemacht haben und die sich verabschiedet haben, ist die und die und die, dann hätte ich da definitiv nochmal drüber nachgedacht. Und ich bin mir heute relativ sicher, dass ich das gemacht mhm. hätte, wenn mich jemand an die Hand genommen hätte. Ja. So. Ja. Jemand, dem man vertrauen kann dann halt auch. Das ist ja auch so die Sache. Ja. Weil ähm, im meisten, in den meisten Fällen kennt man diese Leute ja überhaupt nicht, mit denen man da zu tun hat. Ja. Die treten zum ersten Mal in dein Leben in, in, einer, in einem Moment, wo du in einer krassen Krise bist und eigentlich gar nicht normal äh, auf die reagieren kannst. Und wenn die dann nicht irgendwie besonders einfühlsam sind oder du das Gefühl hast, dass sie dir wohlwollend sind überhaupt. Ja. Also man, ich hab, man hat ja eher so das Gefühl, die wollen da jetzt äh, schnell wieder ihre Ruhe mhm. haben. Und ähm, das ist halt so Business as usual. Ja. Ja. Also das war eher so. Aber ich, ja, ich weiß immer noch nicht. Ich glaube, ich hätte hätte mir vielleicht meinen Bruder mir trotzdem nicht angeguckt. Aber mhm. dann hätte ich es entscheiden können. Und dann wäre es was anderes gewesen, hast du recht. Ja. ja. Tja. So ist das. Hoch, jetzt haben wir hier schon wieder so lange darüber geredet, ne? Das stimmt. Über die Dinge. Also sind wir schon wieder am Ende, Caro, mit unserem Teil heute. Ja, und wir über sind Popkultur. Schon am Ende. Und über Popkultur reden wir gleich mit, mit Erika, wenn sie kommt. Auf Englisch. Auf Englisch. Also wenn ihr uns nicht ertragen könnt mit unserem deutschen, mit unserem deutschen Akzent, <lacht> dann müsst das ihr euch nur noch die Fahrradgedanken anhören, denn die kommen jetzt. Genau. Und ich habe mir heute ein Zitat ausgesucht. Das Zitat kommt aus dem Buch Die Kunst, sich selbst auszuhalten von Michael Bord. Ist das so ein esoterisches Buch, Caro? Das ist ein philosophisches Buch. Ah, gut. Da bin ich beruhigt. Fahrradgedanken sich selbst auszuhalten und bei sich bleiben zu können, bedeutet auch zu akzeptieren, dass es einen Aspekt in unserem Leben gibt, den wir gerne ausblenden, der aber unausweichlich ist. Die Einsamkeit unserer Existenz. Unsere Einsamkeit hängt damit zusammen, dass nur wir selbst in unserer eigenen Haut stecken. Nur wir selbst wissen, wie es sich anfühlt, unser Leben zu leben und wir selbst zu sein. Natürlich können wir versuchen, vieles davon anderen Menschen zu erzählen, vor allem denen, die wir lieben und sie dadurch in die Perspektive, die wir unserem eigenen Leben gegenüber haben, mit hineinzunehmen. Wenn wir jemanden lieben oder in einer tiefen Freundschaft mit jemandem verbunden sind, dann wollen wir von ihm verstanden werden. Wir wollen, dass eine gute Freundin nachvollziehen kann, warum wir so fühlen, wie wir fühlen, warum wir so reagieren, wie wir reagieren, warum wir bestimmte Vorlieben haben, warum uns bestimmte Musik besonders gefällt und andere nicht und warum wir so geworden sind, wie wir geworden sind. 
Sich der Einsamkeit zu stellen, setzt auch voraus, mutig und kraftvoll der Tatsache ins Auge zu sehen, dass wir einmal sterben werden. Nicht ohne Grund hat Hans Faller da seinem Roman den Titel »Jeder stirbt für sich allein« gegeben. Es gibt in der Philosophie und in den Religionen eine Tradition der Ars Moriendi, der Kunst des Sterbens. Zweifelsohne hat es in dieser Tradition problematische Auswüchse gegeben, aber der Sache nach geht es gerade nicht darum, sich mit voller Absicht aus einem guten Leben heraus in die Depression zu stürzen. Es geht darum, in unserem Leben die Tiefe zuzulassen, ohne die unser Leben zunehmend verflacht. Oder, wenn Stress dazu kommt, zu einem Leben im Hamsterrad wird. Wenn wir unserer Sterblichkeit bewusst sind, bringt uns das die Beziehungen, die wir haben und die Aufgaben, denen wir nachkommen, in ihrer Einmaligkeit näher. Das Leben verkommt nicht zu einer Abfolge von immer gleichen Stunden und Tagen, sondern bekommt eine tiefen Dimension, die uns erfüllter leben lässt. Auch wenn wir in der Vergegenwärtigung unserer eigenen Sterblichkeit, unserer existenziellen Einsamkeit gewahr werden, es ist diese Einsamkeit, die unserem Leben Tiefe geben kann. Tiefe und Kreativität, die aus der Einzigartigkeit des eigenen Lebens erwächst. Sollten wir also zunächst noch den Eindruck haben, dass es unserem Leben Kraft und Freude nähme, stellten wir uns dieser Einsamkeit, zeigt sich doch, dass es genau andersherum ist. Die Einsamkeit an sich heranzulassen, kann alles andere als lebensverneinend sein, sondern zu einer tieferen Freude führen, zu einem neuen Geschmack an unserem Leben. Freilich geht das nicht von heute auf morgen, von jetzt auf gleich. Die Umwertung unserer Einsamkeit braucht Zeit. Man muss sich mit ihr befreunden und das ist ein Prozess, den man sich normalerweise in Phasen stellt, in denen einem das Leben fraglicher wird, brüchiger und zerbrechlicher erscheint, in denen der eigene Tod plötzlich näher rückt und die eigene Existenz in Frage stellt. Unsere Kultur steht diesem wichtigen Prozess dabei entgegen, denn wo Aktivität, Arbeit und Leistung so sehr geschätzt werden, wird jede Auseinandersetzung mit der Einsamkeit, dem Sterben und dem Tod an den Rand nicht nur der individuellen, sondern auch der gesellschaftlichen Aufmerksamkeit gedrängt und schließlich ganz verdrängt. Last winter, 
You've been listening to the song Harriet by Erica Fries, and she's sitting right next to us here on the sofa. Hi, Erica. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Thanks for having me. <laughs> It's great to have you here. Yeah, this is the first time that we talk English in our podcast. It's very exciting. You know, we we are doing this podcast because death is still kind of a big taboo in, in Germany. How is it in the US? Well, I think that that really depends, like, subculturally, greater culturally, how it is in the U.S. But in my world, I feel like we do talk about death a lot. I've experienced a lot of death in my community. And then I see, you know, the classic greater societal things, like people wanting to ward off death at every um, chance, like, How much is it financially worth to stay alive as long as possible? You know, these mm -hmm. sort of like societal conversations that are about avoiding it, mm -hmm. avoiding aging, avoiding dying. So I think that that, but I think that that might be different than a taboo around talking about death because death is being talked about. It just as in the context of how do you avoid it? Mm. You know? Yeah. Okay. So maybe we can explain a little bit because we introduced you before quickly. You're a musician and singer-songwriter and also known from the hardcore punk band Reviver. Yeah. So the scene or the community that you're referring to is the punk or hardcore scene? Yeah, I wouldn't say hardcore. In I know that they are really blended here, but I would say just the punk scene mm -hmm. in the States. The punk scene and the queer scene. Mm -hmm. And do you have the feeling that dealing with death or talking about death or the experiences you have with death is different there or dealt with differently there than in the rest of the society? Hmm. That's an interesting question from two sides because one is that I spend most of my time within the punk world, the queer world, and then like my family. Mm -hmm. So I don't know necessarily what the greater society is thinking or feeling beyond what I like read in like the news and the media and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But I do think that, you know, like I've shared the experience of living through deaths that were impactful for those greater communities With those, I've lived through that with those communities, with those of us that continue to survive after those deaths. So then we do learn together. Mm -hmm. There was a death in the hardcore scene, actually, mm -hmm. in Olympia. It might have even been two years ago now. And I knew the person. They were very well cherished. And it was a suicide. And they, but they weren't my immediate friend. They were kind of like the next younger group. Mm -hmm. past my group and I felt their death and I felt the grief but it wasn't mine like I didn't feel like it was my job to get drunk all night break things I knew that the next generation of hardcore kids and punk kids they were going to have a big destructive party <laughs> throw themselves against the walls mm. fall into an alcohol binge that was going to last for a couple months be impacted for years to come. I've lived through that. I don't need to do that anymore when my people die because I have done that. And now I have different ways of dealing with the grief, you know? So you think it's a way of dealing with the grief to uh, get into a destructive alcohol binge? I don't think that it has to be that way. No, but it was in that community. Is that a, a thing people do? In, in, oh, yeah. In, uh, punk communities. Because we don't or, really, we don't have that experience. No, <gasps> it, it sounds almost uh, ecstatic in a way. <laughs> it kind of yeah. is. <clears throat> the first time that I experienced, oh, this is, that is very, very interesting. interesting. Yeah. I'm going to start asking you questions. <laughs> <laughs> But the first death by suicide that I experienced with my close friend group in punk, I was like 24 and We 
like all, all the punks within like a, a three city radius collected at this one punk house. We mourned for a week. We drank nonstop. We biked all over town in like these big crying masses of like 20 people. And wow. It was so, we were so sad, you know, we were, it, it just was like, it, ha- it, you know, it had kind of like the markings of like a festival almost, except for that there was no happiness. We just were like looking into each other's eyes and just weeping and then drinking more alcohol. And we did a big memorial for her on a beach. There was probably like 30 of us sitting in a big circle and um, somebody had the wherewithal. Somebody who was older, I think that she was like 30, had the wherewithal to kind of like give the ritual or the memorial some structure. And so we went around in a circle and said like our favorite memories. Oh, I could cry now thinking about it. It was so sad. The memories were beautiful. She was so weird and cool. And like people poured through her belongings. There's like a, she lived in the house that we all went to. So she had like journals and stuff. People would go up and spend time with her things. Wow. Well, that sounds very beautiful. It was. And when we left that memorial, all of us biking in this group of like, you know, 20 or 30 people, we caused a car accident because it was like raining and kind of dark. And Mm -hmm. there was so many of us and the car didn't expect us to be there. And there was like a rear ending. And I remember just being so sad and probably so drunk that I just was like, of course there was a car wreck and continuing on. We didn't even like (laughs) stop to deal with the car wreck at all. We just were like, that's life. <laughs> you know, but do you think you converted your your grief into some kind of aggression, then? or does, did it, was it not the case? Because it sounds like you dealt with this grief in a very expressive way. Yeah. And was it was it aggressive, or was it more really sad? I didn't feel aggressive, but I know I had friends. You know, there was like the smashing of things, and like mm. you know, like. <laughs> kind of expressions. Yeah, that's anger, isn't it? Maybe like punching a hole in a wall. You know what I yeah. mean? Just like, mm. it's funny to describe it out in <laughs> detail and have that not be the way that you have experienced coping with grief in a group. I've never had that <laughs> community experience, really. No, it's either. very much in a private, but private, like family-like mm-hmm. circle. You know, it's mm-hmm. always very contained with these rituals that are not really my rituals or rituals of a community, but more like, you know, like a funeral and the way you have to behave at a funeral. So I find Mm. that really interesting. Mm. Yeah. I think the very first song from you that I came across dealing with death was uh, Grandma, Mm -hmm. where you were talking about the, the death of your grandmother. Yeah. And I really like that line. I can read it out loud, maybe for the people listening. You're saying, fighting the wish to make you stay, you have to go and that's okay. Yeah. I really like that line. And maybe you can talk Mm -hmm. a bit about that. Yeah. So grandma, I wrote it around the time of my paternal grandma dying. And there was a History within that side of the family where she died suddenly in a car accident. She was probably 86, Mm -hmm. but she was still mentally and physically quite spry, which was not true of any of my other Mm -hmm. grandparents. But she died um, like she probably shouldn't have been driving anymore, but she was. And they got in a car wreck and my dad and his siblings had to decide to pull the life support from her because her body was destroyed in a way that she wouldn't recover from, especially at 86. Yeah, sure. And um, she would have been, there was no way to confirm with her, but they knew that she would have hated being kept on life support. She would have been like, what the hell are you doing to me? Just let me go. And her mom had had a similar thing happen where she had been hit by a car at quite an old age, and they had kept her on life support, even though they knew that she wouldn't have wanted to stay on life support because she also was like a stubborn, strong woman. (laughs) But the taboo is then you are killing your relative, even though I fully disagree with that, and that's why it's an important conversation to have 
before you're in that position. Hmm. But so there was some, um, this feeling in my family of this is interesting to have kind of like an ancestral repetition of the same circumstance and it's okay that it's time to go. None of us were ready because it wasn't like a, a cancer or like a slow coming. It was just a surprise and that was hard, but it's okay. It was time mm-hmm. and it was better than keeping her alive artificially in a way that she would have been furious about if she had the ability to express how she was feeling. Mm. So that's where that line comes from. Mm-hmm. And how did you deal with um, with the grief in your family? Was it completely different to what you just described? Oh, yeah. Community? Yeah. yeah. How did you do that? Also, lots of open crying. Wow. But my family is pretty sensitive. And many months later, because everybody is scattered across the entire continent of the United States, we met up on the East Coast, which is, you know, like 4,000 miles away from where I live. And she had a burial plot in like rural Pennsylvania. And we had like a all of the aunts and uncles, all of the cousins, and then all of the next generation of what would be like my nephews and nieces and stuff. They're present at her memorial. So it yeah. was huge. But, well, it wasn't. It still felt intimate because it wasn't like all of her extended community. It was just biological family Mm -hmm. so there was probably like i don't know 15 of us you know yeah and was that because you told me that you sat by the body of your grandmother for some hours was that that was on my mom's side Mm -hmm. yeah and is that is that something um people do in the u.s like to sit with a dead body no i think that's pretty radical Mm-hmm. And also there's some legality stuff. Yeah, just don't. I don't think you're just allowed to keep a dead body around. Mm. Yeah, there are. I mean, in, in Germany, there are restrictions too on how many hours you can keep people yeah. in the house and then they need to be transferred to something, yeah. to, to facility. Um, but so uh, how come you, you did it anyway? Well, okay, so that is my other grandma and she had dementia and Alzheimer's for the last like probably 12 years of her life. And it was some amount of time greater than like six years, but the last like five or six years, she was actually in a care facility Mm -hmm. and um, she had great body faculty and bad mental faculty. So she was like pretty strong and pretty able-bodied while her mind was gone, which was a really hard combination because mm. it made her way more difficult to care for. Mm-hmm. So my mom moved her to our town and then visited her many times a week, would go take a shower with her at the facility because the she was like too squirmy and the people working wouldn't be expected to like get naked and take a shower with her. So my mom in her 60s was like doing that with her mom. It was really like both hard and so intimate. Yeah. To have this this like exchange of care, but anyway, over those six years, she withered until she was chair bound, and then she moved to a smaller facility where she was bed bound, and then my sister Kendra, who is quite into like end of life care, she I think she'll end up being a hospice worker mm-hmm. at some point. She had the idea: what if we brought her home? What if we brought Ginny, my grandma, home to? my mom's house and um we talked about it and then the plan happened really fast and and she was obviously living in so much pain she had like so much morphine and she was grinding her teeth so much we but we couldn't know what it exactly it was that was hurting her because her body was just this it was like she was like turning into like a little tree gnarl you know like her hands were so clenched and her legs were all pulled up tight and you know, she was like in a bed wearing diapers. And so she lived at my mom's house for about a week where we all had the chance to spend extra time with her. My mom could just like kiss her on the forehead every time she walked by. It was like really therapeutic, (laughs) really healing. And then she died a week later in your house, in my mom's mom's house. house, Yeah. yeah. And my mom was able to sit up with her all night as she went through the death labor, which isn't just like You know, she was like moaning and ha- having that death rattle in yeah. your lungs, you know? Yeah. In that week, I got to play her the song Grandma. Wow. 
which I was like, I never played it for her in the care home because it felt I didn't want to be like performative in front of everybody mm. else. But at home, I was able to. It was real. Ugh, it was so healing. So you were there too for for the last week of your grandma's life. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And we wrestled with some guilt because she was obviously in pain and the women that were caring for her at the care home, they could change her diaper so fast. And we were like, you know, changing her diaper as often as we could so that she wasn't laying in her own, you know, but she was also in pain and we were like, are we causing her more pain? Have, are we doing this for us or for her? But then when she passed so quickly, we thought it was for her. Like she was on some level aware that she was surrounded by family. We were ready for her to go. We weren't waiting and she was able to go, Oh God, it was so felt so like for years we'd been like, what are you holding on for? It's miserable for you here. Mm -hmm. I thought that it was really smart of Kendra my sister to so you think she might have been holding on um, for just to feel safe enough to go I don't maybe safe enough or maybe like I don't know like unsettled enough mm -hmm. or because dementia and Alzheimer's are like whew. yeah yeah but that's the thing about you don't know you know like you don't you don't know if people are still processing something or not or and if you they're just fucking hope they are not <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. But that's a that's a mystery, you know, when people decide to go, or if they even decide, or if it just happens, you you don't know. But how was that to sit next to the to the body of your grandmother? Like, did you feel that she changed in that time, or does did things happen, or how did it feel? Yeah, she looked. You mean how did her body, her dead body, look? Hmm. She looked like she was made out of wax. You know, like. <laughs> Have you ever sat with a dead body? I haven't. No, I haven't either. But you've seen dead bodies. I've seen dead bodies. Yeah. yeah. I had never seen a dead body before. Or, you know, maybe I had from a distance, but never somebody that I was like holding the hand, kissing the cheek, hugging, mm. being like, I love this dead body. <laughs> Or I love the person that inhabited it, you know? But she, you could, she looked like, Where she had been pink, she looked yellow. You know, she just looked, like, drained. Mm. And she wasn't stiff yet, but then she did become mm. stiff. It, it was interesting. Or, like, she had been holding her jaw really tense with that tooth, teeth grinding, and then everything was relaxed. Mm. Different face shape, different skin. So you could really feel that she that the person who was there isn't anymore? Yeah. You could feel it when you touched her. You could see it from across the room. Hmm. She didn't look like she was sleeping. She looked like she was dead. Yeah, that must have been really intense. It was, but it also was like, you know, it is like birth, you know? You, like, do the work to leave the life just like you do the work to come into it. I felt just like, really, you know, I love her so much and I'm going to miss her forever. I was so relieved for her that she was done with this, like, 10-year-on This Ten life is you know? such a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Also, you've had quite a few death experiences. Yeah, I've had a lot of death experiences. I wanted to ask you a bit about the song that you played, Harriet. My favorite line is, of course, there's power in the morning and the grief. <laughs> yeah. In what way do you think there's power in it? Okay, that line specifically is about like actually going through those expressions of grief, you know, whether like instead of buckling down, trying to be strong, trying to not cry, trying to not have your life fall apart, trying to whatever it is that you're trying to do to avoid blast that is experiencing the grief of death, you know, mm -hmm. that it actually is, you know, it's powerful to go through mourning and to go through grief because you're learning, you're changing, your your life is going to be changed. And I don't think that that is a process that you can, like if you, well, we were talking about this the other day, if you try to skip it, hmm. it's going to catch up with you later. Like maybe if there's another death in your life, you're going to grieve twice. Yeah, that's interesting because we were, we we're talking a lot about these because Suzanne and I, we have 
very different ways of dealing with death and with grief. Mm -hmm. And we're talking a lot about that if you're trying to skip it or if you, if you move on like you did before pretty much and you, you, you feel that nothing else really changed or, or you need that, that structure if that's really grieving or if it's not or if it's a way of 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 grieving without really knowing i think it's a very it's a really interesting maybe it's grieving with the handbrakes on <laughs> it just takes you a bit longer yeah which sometimes is i mean it's not like you always can afford in life to just throw yourself into the wind and be like hmm. i'm as fucking sad as i really am <laughs> but i really wished that i'd had a community like you just described in the beginning of our conversation That totally threw me. It sounded like some oriental or exotic thing that people <laughs> do. just American you know? punk. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, wow. I, I wish uh, there would, would have been a, a thing comparable to that. <laughs> you just have a lot of people and you just don't need to give a shit. I have yeah. to say, when you when you told that story, I totally thought Suzanne that would have been the perfect perfect thing for Suzanne. That would have been a perfect thing for me. Yeah, there would be uh, no no need to hold on to anything because everybody's um, just letting go and yeah and caring for each other. But still, wrong grammar. But do you know what I mean? No, it, <laughs> yeah, totally. The one thing I wanted to ask uh, and I forgot before is, um, did it have to do with the way that the person died? I think that suicide is the hardest. Yeah. So it was suicide too. Yeah. Yeah. Because you can't help but wonder what if you had done something different, which I don't think is very fair to wonder because it's everybody's individual choice. Like if somebody reaches their, their limit, their wits end, like it's our responsibility to grieve, but it's not our responsibility to have saved them, you know? No. Hmm. But I do think that, especially back then, when I'd lived through less people I care about killing themselves, I was, like, fixated on, oh, my God, I didn't call her. Yeah. Oh, my God, when I went on that trip and we ended up in the same place, I didn't even know, so I didn't reach out, and she probably thought I didn't like her. You know, like, mm -hmm. just all that, you know, oh, over and over again. But if somebody dies, like... I, th I do think that what in whatever way uh, death comes, you mourn according to the the to manner the of death. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. that's why I was wondering because there was so much anger in what you described, and that's uh, I felt reminded of what I felt because I have had two suicides in my family, mm -hmm. and that that I, I just wish that people would throw themselves against the wall and yeah. just let it out a bit. Uh, all this because all this anger is hard to deal with mm. combined with the grief. Yeah, and also suicide is a very, um, is such a violent, um, way of dying. And, oh, yeah. And so it, it, it kind of seems appropriate, you know, to, yeah. to go somewhere with, with all that violence and that yeah. anger that it produces. To yeah. express violence, yeah. Suzanne oh. <laughs> is impressed. I'm impressed. I'm very impressed. I like it. I also think that it's not, you know, productive, but who cares that it's totally fine for there to be so much anger that they did that. Cause you know, fuck you. You left us here. Like, yes. fuck you. <laughs> you didn't fucking call me. Fuck you. So-and-so had to find you like all that yeah. stuff where you're just like, mm. and actually I think it's really healthy to let this anger out because, um, I don't know. I couldn't, I couldn't really find that anger and I, I can't really find it until today. And I, I'm pretty sure it must be somewhere when mm -hmm. my ex-boyfriend killed himself because there was so much, you know, dealing with, with other things also with, with guilt and with the hopelessness of that decision and everything. I felt that it was very buried somewhere. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And, um, yeah. And here's the thing. And I think uh, that's my question to you. Do you think it has anything to do with you being a punk community because you know in, in punk songs anger is always a big thing mm, mm -hmm. it's always it's always about expressing or letting it out or mm, expressing your your unwellness with the world mm -hmm. in, in anger yeah. do you think it makes it easier maybe or it, it just makes it more nihilist whatever that is nihilist <laughs> yeah. yeah no no no, 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 no. no uh, more close I don't know 
it's the like it seems like the 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 logic yeah the, the next way thing. or the, yeah. the oh yeah the way like to go. an inevitable an inevitability yes mm, yeah. yes okay it's, I think two things about that I think that one punk and also like punkish queer mm-hmm. culture like radical queer culture attracts people that do feel like misfit to the world mm. and that's valid and it is like fantastic to find a community of people where not only do you fit but you are like beautiful exactly as you are and you're like can be you know expressing similar things and angry at the same things and you know you've you've got validation and representation i think that is so important and then i do think that i personally get angry at punk and also sometimes radical queer culture but in a different way for glorifying that kind of like being so fucked up and being so mm. desperate and hopeless and i have experienced and i have heard other people express that it feels like you're not really allowed to do better mm. that you're not really mm. like allowed to feel healthy cuz then you aren't really authentically a misfit and <laughs> i personally think that it is so hard to be happy in this lifetime that why wouldn't you if you are achieving happiness why wouldn't you welcome it because it feels good <laughs> you know yeah yeah wow that's very interesting yeah but i think it's i mean i totally get that you know that it gets kind of this di- destructive dynamic that you just have to stay in otherwise you don't belong Yeah, and you finally found some place where you do belong. Hmm. Yeah. But I have noticed also that in the same way that like when it's interesting that we just are keeping it's focused around this one death when mm-hmm. I was 24, but at that time when that was my first time living through such because I've had plenty of other people that I've been closer to than that die and die of suicide since then. That one was so monumentous. And I noticed that my friends who were also punk, who were like closer to 30 or over 30, were so much calmer. Mm-hmm. Like one friend who I love so dearly, who was really good friends with that woman, was like, I knew this was how she was going to go. She talked about it all the time. And he was really sad, but he wasn't like, this is totally out of the blue. Hmm. Or there was the friend that I talked about that had the wherewithal to know to give structure to that memorial like and those friends had lived through a couple other experiences so you just you do accumulate more of like a a resilience in the world even when you are still living in punk like you don't i think that you are extra kind of like thin and uh i don't know what like vulnerable when you're in your early 20s hmm. yeah i wanted to ask you about that because in the beginning you said that um You know, in your in your twenties, this was a way of of dealing with with death in that punk community and with with expressing anger and stuff. And that you found other ways of dealing with it. Mm-hmm. Like, can you tell us a bit about these ways? Yeah, writing music really helps for me. Mm-hmm. You know, so now I'm like in my mid thirties, and when somebody important to us dies, the group is a lot smaller. People aren't really like traveling from the nearest two cities. But like over the past couple of years, when somebody that we really care about has died, we have rituals like we'll go to the train tracks, which is like a kind of like scrappy, not official park by the water. Mm-hmm. We'll drink a little but not like, you know, it's like a couple beers and not like so many beers that we're like carrying one of us home. <laughs> <laughs> we might burn some things. We might throw some things into the water. We might throw beer bottles into the water and then try to break them with rocks. <laughs> you know? And then I've got some other friends that when somebody dies, they always go to the same bar and they get a snake shot, which is totally disgusting. It's like alcohol. Cider. It's cider, isn't it? No, it's like no. white alcohol with a, a snake inside the bottle. Oh, oh my God. It's so gross. Oh. <laughs> But we just, you know, it's like similar rituals but it's not as overtaking, you know, Hmm. it's important to mourn, but you're still going to 
probably do whatever you need to do tomorrow and not like postpone your life for the next month. So you think it's lifetime dependent, uh, the way you express your grief and your mourning? You mean like where we are in life? Yeah. I think it's more about accumulated experiences, yeah, which maybe. happens to match up with. That's very true. Sometimes. Some people are very resilient when they're 20. Yeah, totally. Because they've had experience. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. And some people haven't experienced very much death when they are in their 40s and then yeah. they have to go through that. Mm. Yeah. We had a couple comes. of guests in our podcast yes. who who are in their fifties and didn't didn't experience a lot of deaths. They which haven't is really been kissed by death. Interesting. <laughs> they haven't been kissed by death yet, which is really interesting. And I just wanted to say I find it really astonishing that you have these rituals because we don't have them. No, I don't know if I hang out in the wrong communities. No, but we're here to establish rituals, Carlo. That's why we sit here and talk <laughs> about stuff so people can think about stuff and maybe come up with their own rituals. But don't you find it interesting, Suzanne? Because I find it very interesting. I mean, we, I don't know any people who have rituals like that. Like, mm. we're all, okay, someone's dead, so yeah. now what? Yeah, now we're all really sad, or we need to go drink a lot. And then and we go it. to the funeral, and that's it. Yeah. So yeah. we should really establish some rituals. Go, people, establish some <laughs> rituals. Yeah. I I mean, you guys don't ever, like, write messages to the dead person and burn them. Write messages no. to the dead person, no. throw them in the water so that they can just go wash away. No. Uh, do you need to do that in a community, or can you do that no, by you yourself? you can do it on your own, yeah. Mm. Uh, other things you can, all, all of these are about writing messages. So it doesn't have to be that, uh, planting things that then can grow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. We did that. Yeah. I'm, I'm more on the throwing beer bottles and <laughs> smashing them. Yeah. I would like that. <laughs> yeah. I want to know after the podcast, I want to hear what you guys do because <laughs> that's, uh, this is incredibly interesting to me. Is it a, cultural thing or is it really a thing about communities and scenes and i don't get it i really don't i think that it is great a greater cultural thing i think that i'm squarely within the communities that we've talked about but like if i think about my mom and her friends yeah like i haven't been to very many traditional funerals in my lifetime but i have a lot of people who have died and i've been at a lot of public gatherings about those people hmm. and that they're all different forms of expressing publicly and outwardly that we're sad that we lost somebody that meant a lot to us you know that's really cool wow yeah. i don't think german people are so much into expressing sadness <laughs> yeah um, i think it's true expressing emotions <laughs> publicly but i think that it's so good for you because it validates that that's normal Yes. That your grief is like yes. based absolutely in reality. We're all going to be born. We're all going to die. And those of us that are left behind through those deaths are going to have to like reconfigure our lives without those elements that have passed on. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, there was a woman who was murdered in Olympia earlier this year. And it seemed very clearly like a racially motivated murder, mm -hmm. but the police weren't... Um, You know, if you just can't get them to care that they're just, no, they're like, she was drunk or they, they were being so fucked up. Like everybody was calling them. It is so rare for like a 55 year old woman to be murdered in Olympia. Like, why don't you care about that? Hmm. That could be so dangerous for other people. Like what, why aren't you paying attention? And so there was a memorial for her that was like part memorial for her beautiful life where I learned a lot about her and you know was able to see what a loss to our community this person that I didn't know represented because they had passed on in this horrible way and also it was part awareness raising and activism mm -hmm. but because the family allowed it to be a public awareness raising thing we all got to be privy to their grief I was crying <laughs> they got up and spoke about her personally, shared their intimate and beautiful details about her with us. There was like people that were funny. There was people that were sad. There was like, um, at one point people threw out a blanket and people put like donations for the family, but also like any sort of like gifts or messages. And that piled up. Oh, wow. There was like flowers piling up 
They let balloons off, which I hate when people let balloons <laughs> off because it leaves plastic in the water. But yeah. I was like so grateful to this family that they were grateful that we all were there so that we could be helping to make it a louder thing that her death wasn't being taken seriously by the justice system. But then we all were given this gift of getting to witness their grief. Hmm. That sounds really beautiful. It was really beautiful. I think we're already over time, aren't we? Yes, we are. So I think we have... We have one more question for you because we have that um, <laughs> questionnaire. That <laughs> questionnaire that we didn't write, but uh, Max Frisch wrote, and he wrote very, very weird questions about death. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, every guest gets one one of these questions. We wanted to ask you the question number twelve. Mm-hmm. What bothers you when it comes to funerals? Christianity. <laughs> That's a good answer. I love it. <laughs> Especially if the person who died was not. If the person who died is into Christianity, good for them. They're getting the like thing. But mm. especially when people like apply an overlay of Christianity on a life that was maybe not participating in that but especially if a life was against that mm. oh it's so rude thank you very much thank erica coming to us, and to yeah. us yeah thank you and um i think tomorrow's is actually tomorrow is going to be new year's eve so happy new year everybody yeah. <laughs> and goodbye Endlich. Vorbei.